said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I spent all of last night trying to say that the gospel is different than what most people think it is. Today, we have heard at the very best a perverted gospel. And in many cases, there is no gospel, no good news, no nearly too good to be true news to it. And so last night I was trying to share that. This morning I used verses 18 through 20 to show that the moment you start talking about that God loves us unconditionally and that it's not based on our performance, people who think that you've got to tell people what a sinner they are and how angry God is and scare them out of hell, people like that immediately start saying, no, people have got to know that they're a sinner. So that's the reason that the apostle Paul brought out in verses 18 through 20 that there is already an intuitive knowledge of our sin and unworthiness and God's wrath and punishment against us. You do not need to tell people that. People at a heart level know it. People will try and convince you they don't. And the rest of Romans chapter one, I'm not going to take time to go into this, but the rest of Romans chapter one shows you that you can harden yourself towards this inner intuitive knowledge of your sin and of God's holiness and your impending judgment. You can deaden yourself to that, but it, nobody starts that way. Everybody at one time had God reveal himself to them, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse is what verse 20 says. But then in verse 21, he starts showing you progressive steps that you take away from God and harden yourself towards God. I've got an awesome teaching entitled The Keys to Staying Full of God that's based on Romans 1.21. I love it. Not many people are drawn to that because of the title, I guess, put on it. But I tell you, it's one of the most important things that you would ever learn about how to keep yourself fresh and sensitive to God. It is a great, great teaching. And so he starts describing progressive steps that people take away. And after a while, there's twice here in Romans chapter one that he says after a while, he gives people up. That means in the Greek, it means to surrender them to their own lust and to their own desires. And that's really significant. I could speak a long time about that, but it's basically just saying that God doesn't make anybody go away from him, but God is constantly pulling people towards himself. But if a person just resists time after time after time, the Lord will eventually let you go. And once that happens, John 6, 44, Jesus said, no man can come under the spirit. I mean, unto the Lord, except the spirit drawing. And if God just lets you go and gives you up, you're damned because on your own, you will never turn to God. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible situation that he's describing. And this goes along with in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says that in the last days, people are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, teaching people to abstain from meat, which is created to be received with thanksgiving, teaching people that they can't marry, which there's religious orders today that say that a minister can't marry. A, the scripture calls that a doctrine of the devil. If that rubs you the wrong way, I'm not in, mad at anybody. I'm not against them. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It's a doctrine of the devil to tell people that you can't marry. And yet there's religious groups that do that. And it just so happens that's one of the reasons that they're plagued with homosexuality. 
because God didn't make people to live that way. There's just a few people that have a special calling like that. And so it says that they can sear their conscience with a hot iron so that they no longer are receptive to this intuitive knowledge of God. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 in uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 12, in the previous verses uh, in chapter 2, it's talking about the end times. And it says that the last days will not come until the man of sin be revealed. Talking about the Antichrist. And he's going to oppose and exalt himself against everything that is named God. And he will actually sit in the temple proclaiming himself as God. And right after that is said, it says, and because... The people did not receive a love of the truth. God will send them strong delusion that they may believe a lie so that they'll all be damned. This is talking about the end times. And God is constantly drawing people unto himself. But in the last times, which I believe we're in the last times, the Lord is going to let people go, give them up to their own heart's desire And they, because they wouldn't receive a love of the truth, they will have a strong delusion. And you know, this is just Andy. I'm still praying about this. I'm not prepared to say thus saith the Lord, but at the moment it looks to me that this is one of the greatest signs to me that we're in the end times. Because I mean, people are doing things today that it defies logic. It just does not make sense. I mean, it's just weird. It's weird. You know, I'm not for or against anybody. I'm really not a political figure, but this thing that happened with Paula Dean recently and what she did, do you know, people are just incense. It's hate speech. And yet the same people who are criticizing her wouldn't think a thing about killing a baby. They'll murder a baby, but they'll get on your case. If you drive one of those gas guzzling cars, you're evil, but there's nothing wrong with you killing a baby. There's nothing wrong with all these other things. I tell you, it's just weird. How dumb can a person get and still breathe? I can't understand how people think that way, except that we are living in a day where there is a strong delusion because people did not receive a love of the truth. I tell you what, the most important thing you will ever do in your life is love the truth. And Jesus said, God's word is truth. John 17, 17. Man, you need to grab hold of the word of God. You need to put God's word first in your place, in your life, because in these last days, there is coming a strong delusion and it causes people to believe a lie. And the end result is that God will bring judgment on people that just totally reject these truths. And I believe that that's what Romans chapter one is describing. Progressive steps. This isn't God's will for anybody. He doesn't just pick some people to go to hell, but people who just constantly refuse him over and over and over can harden their hearts, sear their conscience with a hot iron, and eventually he'll just give them up and they'll have this strong delusion on them and they won't be able to recognize the truth. If you don't recognize that that's the day we're living in, then the process has already started in you. That usually goes over about like that. (laughs) I know some of you think, well, man, that's a little strong. I believe it's that bad. I believe that if Jesus was to come to the earth, you know, for the first time as he did uh, in the Bible, as we read about, if he was to do that today, he would never make it three and a half years. 
He is so politically incorrect. He would stand there and say, you hypocrites, you vipers, you whited sepulchers. And everybody would go, hate speech. (laughs) They'd come out against him. Jesus would never last three and a half years. We live in a corrupt time. And if you don't know that, it's because you've already started being corrupted. You need to get a love of the truth. I tell you, love the Word of God. Spend time in the Word of God. And in a sense, I'm preaching again to the choir because you're the people that took time off to come to a conference. And so you do love the truth. But this is the most important thing. The intake of God's Word into your life is the greatest thing you can do for your sanity and for the sensitivity of your heart, for your relationship with God. So I applaud you for taking time off and coming and sitting under the word for a solid week here. Praise God. I believe it's going to make a big impact on your life. So in Romans chapter one, he starts talking about the progressive steps that people can take. They had this knowledge of God, but you can harden yourself towards it. Then in chapter two, he shows that there's not only an intuitive knowledge, but to the Jew, which the the uh, counterpart to this in our situation would be to the religious person who's heard the word of God. We are doubly guilty because we not only have the internal witness, but we also have the word of God who clearly shows us our need for a savior. And so the religious person is even more guilty than the non-religious person because they just have the intuitive knowledge on the inside, but the religious person has been exposed to the word of God and truths about God that make you doubly guilty. And there's a number of things that he says in chapter two that bring that point out. And I'm gonna skip over them or I'll wind up preaching on them, but there's some great things in Romans chapter two. Then in Romans chapter three, he brings it all back together and he begins to say, so therefore... Everybody is already guilty before God. The non-religious person, because of this intuitive knowledge that God has placed on the inside of them, the religious person, because they have the intuitive knowledge, plus the revelation that the word of God gave. And so therefore all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is nobody that can stand before God on their own righteousness and holiness. Now, what I've said here tonight is kind of a downer. And some people look at this and say, well, man, this is painting a bleak picture. But then in the rest of the Romans, he begins to start talking about the wonderful things that Jesus has done for us. But I believe it's important that a person comes to the end of themselves before they really discover God in a significant way. As long as you think that all you need is a little bit of help. If God will just give you a little bit of help, you are an awesome person and you could really handle it on your own. You know what? You'll never experience God. I heard a woman on television one time that says, I wasn't like all these other people. You know, Dave was talking about, he came out of the demon's den 38 years ago and he was living this sinful life. And some people say, well, boy, he needed God. I don't care if you're the most religious person in here. If you have lived the holiest life, you were just as desperate as Dave. The only difference is you may not have known it. But you know what? There isn't a hell number two or a hell number three. If you go to hell, you miss heaven by an inch. You miss it by a mile. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? 
All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And so we've got to come to the end of ourself and realize that whether you are a non-religious sinner or if you are a religious sinner, sin separated you from God and you have to reach this place to where you acknowledge that sin has polluted you to such a degree you cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot make yourself righteous. And it's amazing today that there's a lot of people that don't believe that. There's a lot of people that believe that they can really clean themselves up and that God will accept them based on their own goodness. They probably wouldn't say it that way, but that's really what people believe. I've been caught up in that. I was raised in that kind of thing. And did you know, even after God uh, showed me his grace and I began to start walking with grace, it's easy for this performance-based relationship to surface again because this is the way that the whole world operates. Most of the religious world is preaching a performance-based relationship and it's so easy to come back on you. You got to fight against this. I remember after I was pastor in a church, my third, uh, third church that I had pastored, I was actually ministering to people so much that I didn't have time to pray or to study the word for myself. I was praying for other people all of the time. I was studying the word, but to tell people, and I wasn't having time for my personal relationship with the Lord. And I knew that I needed to spend time filling myself up. I couldn't just give out all of the time. So I made a commitment to the Lord that I was going to fast and pray and study the word all day long. And this was in Pritchett, Colorado, where we had seen a man raised from the dead. And I mean, people were coming out of the woodwork, a hundred miles. They were bringing people from everywhere for me to minister to people. And I was praying with people from morning until night. And so I made this decision that I was going to fast and pray and study the word all day. And instead, I had somebody come over at like five in the morning and knock on the door and they had a desperate situation. So I had to get out of bed and start ministering to them. I prayed with them and then there was another person and I wound up praying for people all day long. I didn't pray for myself. I was again giving out. And the only time I opened my Bible was to show other people what the word of God said for them. I didn't study it for myself. And the only time I prayed was to pray for people. I didn't pray in my personal relationship. And so that night I was going to a Bible study, 45 miles over there. And as I was driving over there, I felt so unworthy, like I had broken everything. I wasn't going to fast or pray. I mean, I was going to fast and pray and do all of these things. And instead I broke every one of them. Plus I had a guy come over at lunch and he wanted to take me out to eat. And I'd been witnessing to him. And I thought, man, today could be the day that he gets born again. And so I didn't want to tell him, no, I can't go eat with you because I'm fasting. So I wound up going out to eat with this guy. And because I didn't have any breakfast, I was hungry and I ate twice as much as I normally <laughs> ate. So I, I ate, I, I broke everything. And as I was driving over to this Bible study, I was just, I was crying. I was saying, God, how could you ever use me? I lied to you. And I had all, you know, the devil can bring scripture back to you. He used scripture on Jesus. And I had the scripture come back that all liars will have their part in a lake of fire that burns forever. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter five, it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. And I was just, oh God, how could you ever use me? And I was feeling, I'm so sorry. I failed you in everything I said today. 
And I was getting closer to the Bible study and I said, God, I know I don't deserve it, but just use me and speak through me because of the people, even though I don't deserve it. I know you love the people, minister to the people. And I still didn't feel any faith or any release that God was going to use me. So I just kept fishing and I was saying, oh God, I said, just do it because of who Jesus is. And as soon as I said that, I heard the Lord say, who did you think I was going to do it because of? And I had fallen back into this thing of thinking that I've got to be holy enough for God to use me. You don't ever get over this because the whole world operates on performance. God is the only relationship you will ever have in your life that regardless of how sorry you are, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will, man, I could... I could take a lot of scriptures here, but Isaiah chapter 54 says, he will never be wroth with you nor rebuke you as long as the mountains remain. I don't know if you, if you have mountains where you live, but in here we have mountains, amen. And you know what? Let's see, it's right over this way is Pikes Peak. And the mountains are still there. As long as the mountains remain God's covenant of peace, will never depart. He will never be wroth with you, nor rebuke you. And many of you think, oh, God rebukes me all the time. It's not so. Your religious conscience rebukes you. I was raised in a religious system that I used to see profanity scrabbled, you know, scratched in a, a bathroom stall someplace. And I would feel unworthy for two or three weeks. I didn't write it. I just saw it. But because that word came through my mind, I just was afraid that God was going to kill me. I had a dream at least once every six months until I was probably 15 or 16 years old that I had smoked a cigarette and I got caught and turned into the police and the police turned me over to my mother and I woke up in hell, burning in hell. And I would wake up in a cold sweat screaming because I had smoked a cigarette. And some of you think, man, you were messed up. I was. That's what religion will do. But you know what? I never smoked a cigarette in my life. Fear will cause you not to do some things, but I had no joy. Religion just was condemning me. And I was raised under this thing that if you smoke a cigarette, you go straight to hell. You do not pass go. You don't collect $200. You just go to hell. And I remember going to Austria the very first time and there was about two or 300 people in this place and they were all sitting at tables, 10 people at a table and they served free beer to them as long as I preached. <laughs> it was one of the few times nobody cared how long I went because they got free beer. And boy, that was just messing with my little Baptist mind. Everybody was sitting here drinking beer and they were just really getting happy. And yet, if you smoke a cigarette in Austria, you go to hell. There is no question about it. Smoke one cigarette, you go to hell. It is an unforgivable sin. But they drink beer like it's going out of style. And then I crossed the border over into Romania. And in Romania, they smoked. But if you drank, you went to hell. And I thought, we're only a mile from that other place. And yet God's changed. And I began to realize some of these standards were men imposed. 
But you know, for a long time, I just had this legalistic mindset and this is what religion will do to you. There is a point in the law. I'm going to talk about this if I can get back on track. But there is a point in the law and it is to bring you to a place that you realize you can't save yourself. And some religious people think that because they wear their dress all the way down to the floor and they pile their hair up and they don't wear makeup, that that makes them accepted with God. Well, the law is given for you because the law will show you that if you got a mole on your body, you're defiled. If you got a flat nose, you're defiled. If you're left-handed, you're defiled. Why did God say things like that? Is it because he hates left-handed people or people with moles? Does he want you to burn the moles off your body? No, it's for those that think that you are good enough, that you could be accepted with God. I'm good enough, God. I know you're going to accept me because I'm an awesome person. God says, you want me to show you what I intended man to be? And he just shows you a standard of perfection, not for the purpose of showing you how much he hates you, but to get you out of this self-righteousness so that you'll quit trying to be holy on your own, that you'll run up a white flag and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says, accepted. You've got to come to the end of yourself. And that's the reason that before Paul starts talking about all these wonderful truths about the gospel, he shows you that you cannot save yourself. If you aren't religious, well, then you got a inner witness that condemns you. If you are religious, you've got the inner witness and the word that condemns you. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So look in Romans chapter three and in verse 19. It says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. First of all, this says that what the law is saying, it says to those who are under the law, implying that not everybody is under the law. This is a new wrinkle in most people's brains. Most people have never thought this way. They, well, God gave the law to every person. God only gave the law to the Jews. He never wanted the Gentiles to have the law. I could spend a lot of time proving that to you, but the Lord gave the law to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. I'm sure that there are some Jewish Christians in here And praise God, that's awesome. But the majority of you are Gentiles, non-Jews, and God never wanted you to have this law mentality for you to know all of the do's and the don'ts and the commandments. That was never God's way of relating to us. That was a short, temporary period of time. Galatians chapter three says the law was given 430 years after faith was revealed to Abraham and righteousness by faith was instituted 430 years later, the law was given and it was only temporary until Christ should come to whom the promises were made. Now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the law. The law is not for us. Religion should not be teaching us all of the religious do's and don'ts. That just sounds like heresy to some people, but that's exactly what this is saying. It was only given to some people and the things that it was given, when the law was given, it was given for the purpose 
of stopping your mouth and all the world may become guilty before God. The law wasn't given to set you free. The law was given to bind you. The law was given to uh, make you guilty and condemn before God. And yet over in Romans chapter eight, he says, for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, none whatsoever. It says in second Corinthians chapter three, verse six, seven, and on through 10, it says that the law was a ministry of condemnation. The purpose of the law was to condemn. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56 says the strength of sin is the law. The law was given to strengthen sin. It wasn't given to strengthen you in your battle against sin, but it was given to strengthen sin so it could overcome you. And as it says in Romans chapter seven, so it could deceive you and condemn you and kill you. The law was given to kill. And yet there's many Christians today that if you were to ask them, man, are you supposed to be keeping the law of God? Oh, the law of God was was a God-given thing. God gave to set us free to show us all of the things that we had to do to be right with God. That's not why the law was given. The law was given to stop your mouth and to make you guilty before God. The next verse says in verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was given to show you your sin, to take away any deception that you had. You know, again, I've got a teaching out there entitled The True Nature of God that is about six or seven hours worth of teaching on this one point, and it would go into a lot more detail. But the reason God gave the law is because when man sinned, the Lord did not want them to know how ungodly they were, how terrible they were. If he, if he wanted to, he could have given the law to Adam and Eve. He was talking to them face to face. Why didn't he give the law to Adam and Eve? Why did he wait 2,000 years before he gave the law to Moses? It was because that was never his first choice. That's not how he wanted us to be. He didn't want us to know how sinful we were. All Adam and Eve knew that they were naked and they felt terrible about that. Just think, if he would have just taken the people here on this front row and have gone down here and started talking about Mike and Renee and just gone on through every single person and said, look at the hurt and the pain. Look at the divorce. Look at the sickness. Look at the death. Look at the bitterness, the rejection. Look at the wars that have happened. And if he would have just gone through and have just shown Adam and Eve just a little bit of what their sin would have done and what it, how it just allowed pollution and corruption to come into the human race, it would have overwhelmed them. I don't believe that they could have survived. Certainly not 930 years. That's how long Adam lived. He didn't understand the full extent of what happened. God didn't give the law to show them how totally unworthy they were. Then comes along Abraham and Abraham was called the friend of God. And yet Abraham broke Leviticus chapter 18, where it says you can't marry a half sister. If you do, it's an abomination and you've got to put that person to death. And yet Abraham married his half sister God never said anything to him about it. Didn't hold it against him. Didn't punish him. And instead, Abraham was the friend of God. Then Abraham's grandson, Jacob comes along and Jacob marries Leah and Rachel, sisters. 
And according to Leviticus 18, that's an abomination. It's a sexual abomination. If you do that, you got to kill them. God never said a word. He even changed his name to Israel, which meant a prince of God. And he wrestled with an angel and prevailed. A man who is living in a sexual abomination, God hadn't shown that yet. He hadn't told people that yet. For 2,000 years, he dealt with people in mercy because he wasn't wanting them to know their sin because he knew it would drive us from him. When Adam and Eve saw that they were naked, immediately they went and hid themselves. If they would have understood the total depths of their sin, they just would have run further. They would have tried to hide themselves even more. The Lord didn't want us to know how sorry we were. And yet this is basically what religion is all about is showing people how sorry they are and telling them, using the law to show a person how terribly sinful they were. There was a period of time that God operated that way because for the first 2,000 years from Adam until Moses, he didn't impute people's sins unto them. Romans chapter five, verse 13 says that. God didn't impute people's sins unto them until the law. But people took God's lack of punishment upon sin as approval for sin. And they started looking around and they thought, well, Cain killed his brother and instead of God killing him, he actually put a mark on him so that he protected him. He protected the first murderer on the face of the earth. And so Cain's great, great grandson, Lamech, comes along in Genesis chapter four and he kills a man in self-defense. And he says, my murder is more justified than Cain's. And if Cain got by with murder, if God's gonna avenge Cain sevenfold, then he'll avenge me 70 and sevenfold. The only thing wrong with that, God didn't say that. Lamech just decided that on his own. It's what the scripture talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I believe it's verse 12, somewhere around there. It says, but they comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. And this is what people always do. They say, if the hypocrites down there at church make it, I'm gonna make it. The only thing wrong with that reasoning is that the hypocrites down at church aren't your standard. God's not gonna judge you by them. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which is Jesus. But people will compare themselves and they say, well, this person got by with it. This person is living in sin and they're a movie star. They're on the magazine covers and they didn't fall dead. So you know what? It must not be bad to do this. It must not be bad to act this way. People were losing their perspective on what right and wrong was. They were looking and comparing themselves among themselves, which isn't wise And sin was becoming so rampant on the face of the earth that if God hadn't have done something to reestablish right and wrong, there literally wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have come into this earth through. God had to do something to let us see our sins so that we would recognize how sinful we were because we had gotten so far away from the standard of right and wrong. You know, in a sense, if you could imagine this, if you were to fall in quicksand, but it was very, very slow. It was so slow that it was (laughs) nearly imperceptible that you were sinking. And if everybody else around you was in the same quicksand, so that as you look at other people, you're exactly the same as them. You know what? You could, you could wind up being totally killed by that and not even realize you were sinking. 
So, but what would happen if there was a standard over here on a rock, something that wasn't sinking, and if that standard was there, and as you sink, you can look at that standard and say, man, I'm sinking. It shows you a perspective. It puts things back into its right perspective. In a sense, see, everybody was sinking. The whole human race was going down the tubes. Even though God wasn't bringing his judgment on our sin, Satan was taking advantage of our sin and he was destroying the human race. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old and within just like a thousand years or not much over, it was 1600 and something years, the human lifespan had dropped from 900 and something down to 120. It was decreasing quickly because men were giving themselves over to Satan and Satan was destroying the, the human race. Even though God wasn't punishing them, Satan was extracting uh, punishment upon us because we were giving place to him. So God finally had to do something to limit the amount of sin and at the same time to show us our sinfulness and our unworthiness so we would quit trusting in ourselves and thinking that we could save ourselves. So what he gave was the law and the law came along. And for those who were thinking, well, I'm pretty good. At least I'm not like this publican over here. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and I'm really a good person and I believe God's gonna accept me. God says, you think you're good? Thou shalt not. And he started giving law which focused your attention on your sin, began to show you how far short you had come. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it strengthened sin. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9, it was a ministration of death, a ministration of condemnation. Romans 7, it made sin come alive. Romans 3, 19, it stopped your mouth from talking about how good you were and showed you that you were guilty before God. It focused your attention upon sin. And if you use the law for that purpose, to show a person their need for a savior, then the law is okay. But what's wrong is the church has taken the law and applied it to us even after we're a believer. And has been telling Christians that God still demands all of these things. God never gave the law to show you what you had to do to be saved. The purpose of the law was to show you how impossible of you saving yourself, it was. He gave you a standard that was so high that instead of you trying to meet it, the purpose of it was to make you despair. God, if this is what your standard is, if this is what you're calling holiness, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That was the purpose of the law was to drive you to your knees, to knock you flat on your face so that you had nowhere to look but up. You couldn't trust in yourself anymore. And if you use the law for that purpose, to draw a person to the end of themselves and show them that they need a savior, then it's okay. Look at this verse over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says in verse 5, Now the end of the commandment is charity. Talking about God's kind of love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. You know, that's old English for just talking about that they're just, they're saying stupid stuff. Things that they don't even understand. When a person preaches that you've got to be holy, 
They don't have a clue what they're saying because none of us can be holy. Oh, I'm holy. Well, I can come back at you and say, so do you never sin? Do you never have a wrong thought? Do you do everything? And they'll start backpedaling. Oh, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm holy. See, you've missed the whole point. James chapter two, verse 10 says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of all. I have never said a word of profanity in my 64 years. I have never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. But you know what? I'm guilty of all of those things. I'm guilty of homosexuality, murder, lying, everything. Because if it's like if you had a huge glass in front of you and me, it wouldn't matter if you shot a BB through it or if you drive a truck through it. If you break that glass, the whole thing's broken. You can't just replace a little portion of it. The whole thing's broken. That's the way God's standard is. It may have a thousand different laws, but they all make one law. And if you've kept 99 out of 100, you fail. You've lost it. So people who are sitting there proclaiming their own holiness, they'd be the first one to say, well, I'm not perfect. Well, then if you aren't perfect, you aren't holy. This relative holiness where people think, well, I believe God grades on a curve. Nobody's perfect. And so, you know, you just do the best you can. And if you come to church and pay your tithes, and if you do as good as you can, well, then God's going to accept you. Nope, that's not true. You either need to be perfect or you need to quit trusting in yourself and put faith in a savior and get it through the grace of God, receive it by the gospel instead of by your own performance. And a person who doesn't understand that has to be brought to the end of themselves. So the people that they start teaching the law, they're just into what is called here vain jangling. They don't know what they're saying. They desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. I'm not against the law. If you use the law for what it was intended for, to show a person how sorry you are so that you would quit trusting in yourself, you would lose all self-confidence and you would throw yourself upon God and receive right standing through Jesus. And then you start glorying in who you've become through Christ. You start looking at who you are in Christ and not in your self-effort. If you use the law to bring a person to the end of themselves, I'm all for that. But see, sad thing is religion is applying the law even to Christians, even to people who the Bible says you are righteous. And yet the law is showing you that you're unrighteous. If you had 99 good things and one bad thing, the law will not give you a single compliment and say, you're getting better. You're getting closer. Way to go. Stay with it. No, it'll just show you the one thing that's wrong. All it does is show you sin. All it will do is magnify and amplify sin. And so the law is good if you'll use it for the purpose it was intended for. In verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly, etc. The law wasn't given for a righteous man. And yet the Bible says that when you get born again, you become the righteousness of God. The law isn't made for a Christian. The law was made to bring people who were losing their perspective on what right and wrong was. So they thought they were okay because they're as good as everybody else. So the law was given to show you that you aren't going to be judged by everybody else. Here's God's standard, Jesus, here's perfection. And if you aren't perfect, then you are a sinner and you are doomed to hell unless you accept salvation as a gift. That was the purpose of the law. 
You know, I held a meeting in Houston, Texas many years ago, and there was about two or 300 people in a holiday inn. And, and there were people walking by outside and a guy stopped and, and watched for a while. Then he came and stood in the back and finally he started yelling something at me while I was preaching. And I tried to answer his questions, but he was, he was either drunk or he was high on dope. I don't know which it was, but he was not coherent and uh, not listening. So he was just disturbing the service. So I just said, I command you to sit down and shut up in the name of Jesus. And this guy just plopped down right like that. And he sat through the whole service. And after the service was over, I went up and started talking to him and telling him about brother, God loves you. God can set you free. God wants to come into your life. He wants to just take away all the hurt and the pain. And I was telling him about the goodness of God. And this guy says, I don't need God. I am God. And he started telling me that he was God. See, I'd been telling him about the goodness of God. It says in Romans 2, 4, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. So I was telling him about the goodness of God. But when he started proclaiming that he was God, you know what I did? I whooped the law out. And I began to start just beating this man with the law. I said, you stink in the nostrils of God. I said, God, I, I just told him how sorry he was. I used every scripture I could think of to show him that he was a sinner. And within minutes, this guy who had proclaimed that he was God was sitting there in a puddle of tears, just crying about how sorry and how rotten he was. That's the purpose of the law for people who think that they don't need God. Just beat them to their knees. But once you come to God, God does not want you to be focused on your sin. He wants you to focus on what he has done for you and who you've become in Christ. That's what these verses are saying. So back to Romans chapter three in verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, right standing with God without keeping all of the do's and don'ts, without you doing all of these things is manifest. That means it's clear, it's evident, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Did you know that the law prophesied an end to itself? Even Moses, when he gave the law, he said that what is, what should we do? Should we ascend into heaven? Or should we go into the deep? But he says, no, the word is nigh you, even in your mouth and in your heart. And Paul quoted that in Romans chapter 10. And he goes on to say, it's the word of faith, which we preach. He was quoting from Moses. Moses prophesied an end to the law. It was only until the redeemer could come. It shut people up unto faith is what it says in Galatians chapter three. So let me go on. I'm trying to hurry through some of these things, but this is just rich. Most people don't know these truths. Most people have misunderstood why God gave the law. They think God gave it to help them. Well, God gave it to help show you how sorry you were, but it didn't pull you out of the ditch. It just knocked you down in it and said, you can't ever get out of it. That's what the law was meant to do. It didn't save you. In verse 22, it says, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Man, every one of those words is important. I could preach on that for an hour. 
not the righteousness of man, not self-righteousness, but a God-righteousness is now given unto us by faith of Jesus Christ, not faith in Jesus Christ. It is true that we put faith in Christ and what he's done, but it's the faith of Christ that makes you righteous. It's what he did. It's his holiness imputed unto you, put to your account. You are made righteous, not by believing in Jesus, but Jesus did it and he gives it to you as a free gift. There is a gift of righteousness. It's faith righteousness, not law righteousness. The church has been preaching a law righteousness that you do this, this, and this, and you'll be in right standing with God. The New Testament preaches that no, you can't be righteous by anything that you do. It's Jesus that makes you righteous. Humble yourself and receive it as a gift. Man, that's awesome right there. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that you are justified. The word justified means to be declared free from the guilt and penalty attached to grievous sin. But my layman's definition is it just means just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified just as if I'd never sinned. It means that you have no, sin has no dominion. You aren't stained. You know, the Baptist church that I was raised in, they taught, they actually had a guy one time bring a two before and drive nails in it. He said, this two before is your life and the nails are sin. And he says, when Jesus comes, he pulls the nails, but then he held up the two before and he says, but you still got the marks of sin. You're an old sinner saved by grace. That's not true. A better illustration is that this two before is your life. The nails are sin. God comes and just takes that and throws it away and gives you a brand new life that is sinless. And it's just as if you'd never sinned. In your spirit, there isn't any trace of sin. There isn't any residue of sin. It's just as if you'd never sinned. You are justified by his grace, not by your performance. God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And God looks at you in the spirit and in the spirit, your spirit was created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4, 24. You are righteous and holy. Man, that's nearly too good to be true news. In verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, not faith in what you've done and how good you're doing, but faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. He's reemphasizing it's not your righteousness. It's not your goodness. It's his righteousness that was applied unto you. You become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You never trust in your own righteousness. You never trust in your own actions. He declared his righteousness for the redemption of sins that are past. And then in verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of of faith. This is saying that, you know what? If you truly understood that you didn't deserve salvation, 
God didn't give it to you because you were such a wonderful person and he just granted you salvation because you had done so well. If the law had its full impact in your life and if you came to realize that, oh God, I'm a sinner and I don't deserve anything but hell. All I deserve by my action is hell. And all you deserve is hell. None of us deserve the goodness of God. If you understood that, then when grace comes and you hear this nearly too good to be true news, you aren't going to get what you deserve, but Jesus paid for your sins. And if you will accept it, it's a free gift. Will you just accept salvation based on what Jesus did? And not only the forgiveness of sin, but accept healing accept joy, accept God flowing through you, accept that you're anointed, not because you deserve it, but because it's a gift. If you would accept this by faith, then it stops this bragging about who you are and look what I've done. People that sit there and look down their nose at somebody else and say, man, I'm better than they are. You don't understand grace. You've never come to realize that you can't save yourself. You are trusting in self-righteousness It excludes boasting by grace. And then he said in verse 28, therefore we conclude, here's the conclusion of the first three chapters. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Did you know that that verse caused the Protestant reformation? I don't know how many of you have studied about Martin Luther, but he was a Catholic priest And he was frustrated. He didn't have any peace in his heart. He didn't have any assurance that God really accepted him. And yet he was doing all of the religious things. And he began to start studying the word and he was reading Romans. And he was at the Vatican and he was crawling up these uh, uh, stone steps. And he was stopping on every step on his knees and kissing his rosary and reciting his things and going through the rituals to make himself accepted so that God would do something. And the scriptures he'd been studying came back to him, specifically this verse, that we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And it just dawned on him. It is not crawling up these stone steps on my knees and kissing a crucifix that is going to make God love me. It's faith in what Jesus has done. And he got up off of his knees and walked out of there, put his thesis up on the door and started the Protestant Reformation saying that we have relationship with God, not based on our works, but based on what faith in what Jesus did. And you and I are here today because of this scripture in a man back in the 1500s. And sad to say, did you know that the real truth that Martin Luther and others begin to start promoting has been lost among most of the Protestants today. And today we just have a different set of religious standards than the Catholic church. But we have fallen back into believing that now maybe you don't have to, uh, you know, have communion or do this or that, but you've got to dress a certain way. You got to go to church. You got to pay your tithes. You got to do all of these things. The Pentecostals have our own set of deals about how you got to pray in tongues an hour a day and how you got to do this and this and this. And we do all of these things to feel like we are worthy. And that is totally undoing the gospel. So these first three chapters 
are basically just a summary to bring you to the end of yourself, show you that the law was given to show you that you cannot do anything to make yourself righteous with God. You're, you're completely incapable of it. I am. None of us can do it. God never wanted us to try and make ourselves worthy. He just wanted us to accept his goodness and mercy. But we begin to take his lack of punishment and judgment as an okay on sin. And so there was a period of time until Jesus could come who could reveal God the Father perfectly, which Hebrews chapter one says, until Jesus could come and get open us up and help us to understand things, God had to deal with us in a harsh way to show us his wrath and judgment so that we would realize we're sinners and we would despair of saving ourselves. So that for 2000 years from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, man, God was hard on sin. The very first person who killed his brother, Cain, was protected and shown mercy and grace. The very first person to break the law was a man who picked up some sticks so he could make a fire and fix some food. And God said, show him no mercy, kill him. Can you tell the difference between the grace and the law? God waited 2000 years because this isn't the way he wanted to reveal himself. But he did it because of the hardness of our hearts. You know, it's comparable to the way we train our children or the way we're supposed to train our children. We've gotten away from this too, but you know, a little two-year-old doesn't understand if you sit there and just tell him, now, Johnny, you shouldn't take this toy from your sister. That's giving place to the devil. It's the devil. Jesus said that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so you are actually yielding yourself to the devil when you were selfish and when you want things for yourself. And if you yield to the devil, he comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. And if you do that, you're going to lose your marriage. Your marriage will never work because you're only thinking about yourself. You'll never be able to keep a job. And on and on. And if you try and talk to a one or a two-year-old that way, they don't understand what you say. They cannot comprehend that. They don't even know there is a God or a devil, a heaven or a hell. But you know what you can tell a one-year-old, two-year-old? You go over there and take that toy again, I'm going to spank you. And they may not know there is a God or devil, but the next time they have that thought, they, because of the fear of punishment, they will think twice about going over there and do it. You can get them to not do that out of fear of punishment. But you know what? That's not what a, a parent doesn't want to, their child to live under fear of punishment. It's just a temporary thing. And some people say, well, you shouldn't do that at all. That's the reason you have the terrible twos. There is a place for it. The scripture teaches it. I was over at a woman's house one time. She had multiple sclerosis and I was praying for her and she was keeping her grandkids and these grandkids were just totally out of control. Nobody had ever disciplined them. And they ran out in the street twice. I had to go out and get them twice and bring them back and put them in the yard. And they'd just run straight back out in the street. And this woman said, I just can't control them. They can't be controlled. I said, you can't control them. You don't control them. And she says, what do you mean? I said, do you give me permission to discipline your grandkids? And she said, yes. And so that kid ran right out in the street and I went and got him and I just whipped him. I turned him over my knees and I whipped him. 
And I said, if you do that again, I'll whip you again. And I let him go. And you know what? He started for that street and he stopped and looked at me and I was looking at him and he came back and he didn't do it. And some people think, well, that's terrible. Well, it saved his life. There's people that think, well, you just ought to let kids go and learn on their own. That's the reason people get killed and things. You know, my son, when he was only a year old, we were walking down a dirt road and there was uh, weeds that had grown up. I don't know. They were over my head, five or six feet tall. And he was walking down a dirt road that nobody was ever out on this dirt road. So he was about 50 yards or so in front of us, long ways in front of us. And we saw the dust coming up and a car must've been coming down this crossroad going 50 or miles an hour or something. It was just really fast and the dirt was coming up and I, I couldn't run and stop him. And he and this car were meeting perfectly at this intersection. The car couldn't see him. He couldn't see the car, but because I had disciplined him, all I had to do was say, Joshua, stop. And I mean, he just, boom, stopped right in his tracks and his car goes right in front of him. Did you know, because I disciplined him, it saved his life. Some people think, well, it's terrible to spank your child. I guess it's okay to let a car run over him. <laughs> you need to teach your children no. And even before they get to where they can reason, you need to teach them no, but... You don't want them to be 30, 40, 50 years old looking and saying, is my dad around? Is he going to spank me if I do this? You know, my mother, we lived on a busy city street and she whooped me. She didn't spank me. She whooped me many times. And if I ever crossed the street without looking both ways, I got a whooping. And you know what? I'm now 64. My mother's gone. She's with Jesus. And I still look both ways two or three times. Not because I fear a spanking. Now I understand what the spanking was really trying to do is trying to get me to recognize that you don't want to be run over by a car. Likewise, the law was never God's original system. But when people, before they got born again, they couldn't understand spiritual things. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 says the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. A lost man cannot discern spiritual things without the quickening of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament people did not have the quickening of the Holy Spirit. And therefore God had to deal with them in a physical, tangible way And through fear, he got them to quit living in sin and yielding themselves to sin as much as they did. It limited Satan's inroad, but the law couldn't save them. All it could do is put fear in them, show them how bad they were. Now that grace has come, God doesn't want you living under that law. He doesn't want you afraid that you're going to get a spanking. He wants you to look beyond that and recognize it's not about his punishment, But Satan is going to have inroad into your life if you go live in sin. Man, that's awesome. I've said things tonight that it took me 20 years to figure out. Some of you may think, well, boy, you were slow. But you know what? Most people do not understand what I've talked about. Most people totally miss this. And they think that God is demanding your complete obedience in every area before he'll answer a prayer and you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the real purpose of the law. 
So what I've done up to these point, these three messages is basically lay a foundation to bring you to the end of yourself, show you why God revealed sin through the law. And now we're ready to get into talking about the real power of grace and things. And I tell you, the rest of the book of Romans is just awesome. Amen. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight and I ask you that the Holy Spirit would quicken these truths to us and that we would understand these truths about what the law was given for, about us getting rid of our self-righteousness. That Father, we would come to the end of ourselves. If there's any person here, Father, who is still caught up in this self-righteousness, And is trying to earn your favor. And every time they mess up, they come under guilt and condemnation and doubt that you will do things for them because they aren't worthy. Father, I pray that the scripture that we've shared tonight would reveal the truth to them and show them, Father, that it's not based on our performance. That the law was given to just amplify our sin so that we would despair of this self-righteousness. Father, I thank you that you set people free. You know, I believe that the Holy Spirit is moving in this auditorium right now, that there are some of you that you didn't see this clearly. You didn't realize you were into this self-righteousness. You didn't realize how much you were trusting in yourself. But the Word tonight has revealed these things to you. And it may be painful at the moment, but it's good to come to the end of yourself and realize that, God, I can't ever earn anything from you. I don't deserve the things of God. And it's freedom and liberty to come to the end of yourself and quit trying to promote yourself and just receive the goodness of God as a gift. Man, I feel like the Holy Spirit right now is just ministering peace and rest to people. There's peace when your faith is in Jesus because he won't fluctuate. If your faith is in yourself and your own performance, even if you did good today, there's no guarantee you'll do good tomorrow. You can't rest. There isn't any peace. The Holy Spirit is ministering peace and rest to people that you would just lean upon Jesus and throw all of your care upon him and say, Father, you're my only hope. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, the Lord's also showing me that there's, some, there's at least one person, there could be more than one, but there's a person here that you've doubted your salvation. You don't have an assurance that you're truly saved, and yet you do everything. You go to church, you study the Word, you do all these things, but you've just never gotten the peace. And it's because you're always wondering, have I done enough? And the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now. It's not about what you've done. That's the very thing. You are thinking that you've got to do all of this stuff. If you would just run up a white flag and say, God, I'll never be able to do enough. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus as my Savior. I make Him my Lord and I believe that I receive by grace. Right now, you could receive an assurance of your salvation. You could quit wavering and doubting. There's people right here tonight who need that. God is speaking to you right now. And if you'd receive it, And just say, Father, I give up. I give up trying to ever do enough to get saved. I just trust in you. And if I could go to hell trusting you with my whole heart, then nobody's got a chance. 
I believe that God's speaking peace to somebody. Man, this is big. This is big. There's, I've known people that were just tormented over this. I believe God is speaking peace to you right now through the grace of God. Father, I thank you and I believe that you are setting people free all over this auditorium tonight. Father, we thank you for that and we receive it in the mighty name of Jesus.